All right, welcome back to the Chrysostom Podcast. So good to see everybody again. Um, actually, I'm not seeing you, but so good to talk to everybody again. I don't really even know where that came from, but it's just good to be back recording. I know that uh, this episode is actually uploaded a week later than when I usually upload episodes. Sorry about that. Got a little bit sidetracked, but hey, better late than never. Um, also, just want to let you know, uh, uh, just in advance, apologize if there's any audio issues. I think everything turned out all right on the last one, but I've been changing locations. Like last time I recorded in a church building, this time I'm recording at home. So you never really know uh, what kind of difference that's going to make. But hey, I'm really excited because we are beginning a... Um, a very, very short series of podcasts um, devoted to St. John Chrysostom's letters to Olympias. And like I told you in the introduction episode, we're mainly going to focus on John's sermons because that's what's been preserved. That's what's been left behind. But he actually does have a few letters that we can read to. And so we're going to just to get a taste of, of John's style. We've already gone through some sermons. Now we're going to get through some letters, some writings, some things he didn't, you know, speak in front of an audience and uh, and really get to understand the person of John and uh, see how he kind of personally pastors uh, those around him. Let me take a coffee break. All right, I'm back. I'm ready to go. So letters to Olympia. So just like the title says, um, St. John was writing letters to a woman named Olympias. So who is Olympias? Um, Olympias was the daughter of a count in the empire, so an important political figure. Um, he died when she was young, and her father was actually a pagan. Um, but you know, he died when she was young, so she was brought up by her uncle, who was a devout Christian and who was a friend of. St. Gregory of Nazianzus, another great Eastern father, also known as St. Gregory the Theologian uh, in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And Gregory took very great interest in her spiritual development. So in Olympias's life, she had a fantastic uncle, but then two titans of the faith, St. John Chrysostom and St. Gregory, pouring into her. Uh, so she had a, a great spiritual upbringing. Um, Olympias inherited like a ton of money, and she was also a very pretty woman. So she married, I got to try and get this right, Nebridius when she was 16 years old. But uh, from what we know, the marriage didn't seem to be a very happy one. And sadly, he passed away two years after their marriage. And Olympias took this as a sign that she shouldn't be married. God doesn't want her to be married. Um, she's just going to live a single life and invest in the church. In fact, the emperor Theodosius wanted her to marry a particular Spaniard, probably for political and influential reasons, um, but she actually refused. She knew she wanted to be single for her life. Um, and so Theodosius actually temporarily took her wealth away to try and bully her into marrying this man. But you know what she did? She mocked him. She said, hey, this is a blessing that you're taking my money away. This is, this is less I have to deal with, less temptation. I get to focus on God more. Like basically just mocked the emperor to his face. And after a while, he realized this is really pointless. This is stupid. And he gave her the money back. And so when she got the money back, she spent her money supporting the poor and the sick and the churches in Greece, Asia Minor, and Syria. And in fact, Olympias was so liberal in her giving. She was so just untethered to her own riches that John Chrysostom himself 
had to tell her to slow down and to be a good steward so that she didn't give money to just everybody who wanted it, including those who would use it for wrong reasons or bishops who just wanted a lavish lifestyle or whatever. Like, and John is the, like the preacher against the bad use of money. Like, if you read him, he always figures out a way to to kind of stir stir the conversation steer it rather towards money. But he's like, hey, just slow down, keep some of it, you know, let's let's be careful here. But Olympias took care of Chrysostom and supplied his needs, um, though herself she was very, very austere. Now listen to this. Olympias did not bathe and she had severe sleep restrictions. So back in the day in the early church, especially in the eastern part, there was a lot of focus on uh, on fasting, on restrictions, on staying up all night to sleep. There's a very monastic type of influence here. Um, you know, things when you think about monasticism that they picked up that sort of... Um, uh, uh, putting away the flesh, putting away the desires of the flesh to focus on God. And so oftentimes they probably went a little bit far, certainly far past what we would do today, but um, definitely went a little bit too far. John was guilty of this as well. He fasted um, so strongly in his six years before he began ministry. Uh, He actually permanently damaged his body. So there is some extremism here, but she was very liberal with her giving. Her heart was in the right place. She really and truly desire to serve God and to serve his church above all else with eternity in view. And so as Chrysostom's writing these letters to Olympias, uh, in his life, he wrote 17 letters to her. Um, Chrysostom, in, in the letters we're looking at, was exiled from Constantinople. So his exile began in 404 on trumped-up charges that he was uh, speaking directly against the empress Eudoxia, that he was specifically targeting her and kind of bad-mouthing her um, because John preached a lot against wealth, particularly uh, overly lavish lifestyles to the neglect of the poor and suffering in their own communities. So they were, you know, he's preaching against all this. Now, John preaches against all this, but there's no proof that John was preaching directly against Eudoxia or that he was doing anything illegal or unchristlike or anything like that. But John had a lot of enemies. Um, there were a lot of bishops and ministers who also wanted to live a lavish lifestyle. And so John let him have it. I mean, he was pretty open um, about their greediness. And so he made some enemies. And uh, between the enemies feeding her lies and her own lavishness, probably her own conviction, um, she finally got away with banishing John from Constantinople, where he was the bishop. And so Olympias cared for Chrysostom and his exile. She wanted to make sure that he was okay. They're talking back and forth and back home. Um, People like Olympias and other Christians who took John's side, who were Orthodox, who are pure, um, they began to experience some persecution and some kickback for their support of him. And so they were kind of feeling it ter- too, excuse me, too. It was some uh, turbulent times, if you will. So John is writing to Olympias to try and address the situation, comfort her, and help her. So 
Let's dive in to that first letter. Um, Chrysostom begins by asking Olympias why she is in despair. And he kind of hints about the church being persecuted, including himself, and that, hey, this is the reason that you are in despair. In fact, he uses kind of some poetic language and describes it like sailors on a hopeless ship that is, you know, sinking, basically. I mean, he goes into great detail to talk about that feeling of just helplessness and hopelessness, and that that is how she feels, and the rest of the church probably feels at the moment. But he comforts Olympias by reminding her this, that God often allows us to get to great despair before he finally comes through. And why? Because this teaches us patience. Therefore, Olympia should take courage, she should have faith, and she should trust in God because this is how God works. Chrysostom says this, I quote, For there is only one thing, Olympias, which is really terrible, only one real trial, and that is sin. And I have never ceased continually harping upon this theme. But as for all other things, plots, enmities, frauds, calumnies, insults, accusations, confiscation, exile, the keen sword of the enemy, the peril of the deep, warfare of the whole world, or anything else you like to name, they are but idle tales. Listen to that. I mean, that's pretty incredible. This man has just been deposed. He's just been launched into exile. The church and the city that he desperately loves has come under attack. And so he's going through this great persecution. And what is he saying? Hey, it's fine. The only one thing we have to worry about, the only one real enemy, the only one thing that can ever conquer us and have true victory is sin. Everything else is just an idle tale. It's really nothing. It's really nothing that big. It's really nothing at all. As long as you stay away from sin, place your trust in Christ, everything's going to be okay. And no matter what happens to you, it ultimately doesn't get the victory. He points out how these things can only harm the body, but they can't harm the soul. I quote, Why then dost thou fear temporal things which pass away like the stream of a river? For such is the nature of present things, whether they be pleasant or painful. John is living his life in light of eternity. That John is able in the midst of his suffering to have such great faith in Christ, and Christ's promise to save, and Christ's promise to resurrect, and Christ's Christ promised to come back and to defeat all of our enemies. I mean, he is so sure of this that he's like, look, why be scared? Why be worried? Everything that's present, whether it's good or it's bad, is like a stream. It's always fading away. And what you need to keep in view is eternity in Christ. What a mindset to have. What a mindset. And Christ, or excuse me, Chrysostom kind of wants to come around and re-emphasize his point. So he, he, he does that. He comes back around to it and he says this. He does not put down evils at the outset, but when they have grown to a head, when scarcely any form of the enemy's malice remains ungratified, then God suddenly converts all things to a state of tranquility and conducts them to an unexpected settlement. For he is not only able to turn as many things as we expect and hope to good, but many more, yea, infinitely more. Listen to that. Listen to the words of John, that he's in this exile, in this suffering, and yet he says, I'm not worried about anything but sin. 
If I've got Christ, if my sin's defeated, everything else like a river is passing away. So what am I going to do? I'm going to have patience. I'm going to trust God. Why? Because God likes to work by coming in at the last minute. That he likes to have it where the enemy has almost um, you know, no form of malice ungratified. That the enemy has almost done all that he can do. And then God comes in, God steps in and brings tranquility and peace and settlement far more than we can even imagine. That John is sort of setting up something that's almost axiomatic. That God shows up right on time. John mentions the story of the three Hebrew boys. He's talking about how they weren't delivered at the threat of the furnace, but they were delivered after much fear, after the furnace was fully heated, and after being thrown in. Then came the great victory. Then came the destruction of their enemy. But it wasn't without a bunch of suffering and worry first. This is just true for John, for every situation. This is axiomatic that God shows up at the right time. So what does this mean for us? What do we do in suffering? John says this, I quote, Dost thou see the abundance of resource belonging to God? His wisdom, his extraordinary power, his loving kindness and care? Be not therefore dismayed or troubled, but continue to give thanks to God for all things, praising and invoking him. John tells us to worship God, to continue to seek him in the midst of trouble. Why? Because one, God is surely enough. He has an abundance of resource, that he is the creator of the universe. If God created everything out of nothing, if he heals the sick, if he raises the dead, if he cleanses the sinner, then God is certainly enough for you, no matter what you're going through. But it's not just that. John calls us to have faith in who God is and to have patience because of the way that God works. That we trust that God is enough and that God is always right on time. That God may not show up when we want him to, but God shows up at the right time with all power in his hand to provide for us exactly what we need. So listener, I ask you this, what are you going through today? What do you need? In what way are you suffering? Could it be that you've gotten the bad doctor's report? Could it be that your children aren't serving Jesus? Could it be that you've gone through a terrible breakup or the end of a relationship? Are you struggling with repeated sin that you really truly do hate? That you want to be free from the addiction, from the habit, from the whatever it is? Like, are you burdened today? Know this. We don't have reason to give up hope, but we have a God who is all-powerful, with all power in his hands, and he shows up at the right time. Don't forget the three Hebrew boys. They were thrown in the furnace before they were delivered from the furnace. That God didn't step in at the threat. He stepped in as they were in the fire. That God didn't necessarily bring them out of the fire or prevent the fire to begin with, rather, but God was there with them in the midst of the fire. And so know this, God has not forgotten you, left you, or abandoned you, but God is always right on time. But then John moves on. He, he presents what's really like a figurative argument. That ancient writers often do this. You see this especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul in, um, in, in the scriptures where they kind of 
almost argue and fight against this fake opponent. And it's just a way of addressing all of the different ideas and objections that someone may have. So John moves on to this figurative argument that he thinks Olympias might ask. So John asked this question, but what about all of the bad things that seem to be happening happening, and that don't seem to be ending good? Like, and he really focuses in, what about those who reject God's grace, who persist in evil, who remain in their sins, or all of the other evil things that seem to just be evil? I mean, that where it seems that evil is winning. John wants to be fair, and he wants to address all of these issues. So John proceeds to go on for a very long time talking about all of the evil things that happened to Christ. Um, Just kind of as a precursor, what John is going to do, and I'm going to explain it and walk through it, but John's trying to say, hey, just because evil happens to the Christian, just because bad happens to the Christian, um, does not mean that God isn't working. So John's basically saying this, that Christ wasn't defeated, and yet Christ had evil happen to him continually. That, that, That Christ went through all of these things, but it didn't mean that he was a loser. That Christ was born a wanderer. That all of these babies died at the hand of Herod when Christ was born. That Jesus on this earth had no place to lay his head. That the Pharisees were constantly after him, accusing him, confronting him, trying to trick him. Trick him. Jesus' own people, the Jewish people, in large part rejected him. And in, in the most crucial moment of his life, his own disciples left him. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was accused, called guilty. He was handed over for money by one of his disciples. He was traded for Barabbas and crucified on a criminal's cross. But John says this, I quote, And yet the long-suffering God patiently endured, ordering all things according to his own inscrutable wisdom. What is John trying to say here? He's trying to address two things. The nature of evil in our life, when bad things show up, is it out of God's control? And then two, God's patience for the world. What about people, human beings who persist in their sin? So John's saying this, one, when it comes to the evil, to the impenitent, to those persisting in their sin, listen to me, God is incredibly long-suffering. That evil does not win, uh, but excuse me, that, that evil does not force God to blow a fuse, even though it seems like it's winning in the moment. But God patiently endures and waits for those who have not repented yet. He gives them a chance to turn and repent. And so John's trying to say, look, Olympias, there are some evil people. There are some evil bishops. There are some evil Christians. There are some evil, you know, in the empress and the emperor who claim to be Christians, and yet they're living in evil. They're sinners all around. It may seem like evil is winning, but he says this, just because someone is presently evil doesn't mean that they don't have hope, that God is patient, that God hasn't immediately just handed them over to a hardened heart, that God is constantly and persistently pursuing them, and that there's still time for them to turn. And the good news is, is that it's not like evil has won or is too strong. 
God has given them sufficient grace. God's blood is enough for them that if they turn away from him, it's not because God was powerless to save. It's because they didn't turn. They persisted in their sin. But even though people are evil, he's saying, look, God is patient. God is long-suffering. God hasn't poured his wrath out on them yet. God has not handed them over yet. There is still time. Don't look at a bad situation and give up hope just yet. But two, that quote that, that, that John stated is dealing with God's sovereignty over evil. You know, remember, John basically said, like, God, you know, ordered this. He says, and, uh, uh, and yet the long-suffering God patiently endured, ordering all things according to his own inscrutable wisdom. Then in some mysterious, mind-blowing way, God ordered all things to his inscrutable wisdom. I mean, that just blows our mind. Now, this isn't to say that God is the cause of evil. God didn't force people to sin. He didn't force people to put him up on a cross. And yet, mysteriously, sovereignly, God ordered everything according to his own wisdom, that he would use evil and sin and brokenness for his own purposes and for our good, that though humans on their own volition and under the influence of, of the enemy, the evil one, commits sin, God is still sovereign and powerful over it. That though there may be evil and suffering in your life, it's not out of the bounds of God's control. To give more details, John goes in on the church. He talks about how the church early on suffered many, many trials and persecutions. The gospel and the church were fought very hard against. And yet, I quote, and thus amidst alternate trials and respites from trial, the fabric of the church was wrought. And those who once stumbled were afterwards set upright. And they who wandered away were brought back and the ruined place were built up more firmly than before. That John is saying that the church had a lot of evil against it, and yet it flourished in the midst of that evil. And many sinners, many people who were against the gospel, think the apostle Paul turned and obeyed Christ in the end. That God working through evil and being long-suffering through evil brought good and brought the foundation of the church. He talks about how God, rich in wisdom, would not allow Paul to have the thorn removed from his side, and the gospel preached smoothly. God in his wisdom knew that the effectiveness of the gospel um, is going through hardship, not around it. That in this way, God knows sometimes it's best for us to go through painful times, through suffering, through heartache, because for the good of the gospel, for the good of us, God is sovereign over our suffering. John concludes this, I quote, If then even now you will reckon up the good things with the painful, you will see that many events have occurred, which if not positive signs and wonders do yet resemble signs and are unspeakable proofs of the great providence and succor of God. John is letting us know that evil in the world and in people does not mean hopelessness. But God's wisdom works through evil, through suffering, through non-salvation. That God's church was built through suffering. And all these people are, are persecuting the church. And all these people are coming against Olympias and coming against John. And yet, John says, when there is evil, we, let's treat it as a sign. When there's evil, let's treat it as a marker. Just 
just like when a miracle occurs or a healing occurs, we know God is present. When evil occurs and persecution occurs, what do we know? That God is present. That just as God is present in the miracle, he's present in the suffering and in the fire. And we know God is working something for our good. So listener, take a renewed look at your struggle. Your struggle is not a sign that evil is winning, but a sign that God is working. A sign that God is in your situation. A sign that God is making you better. That if God worked through Paul, even though he had a thorn, that if God built his church, even though there was persecution, God is working through your suffering and through your situation for your good. That your suffering is not something that's going to defeat you, but it's a tool that's going to build you up because God is sovereign over suffering. And this is why John can truly say the only thing, the only thing to fear is sin. Because all else, all temporary things have no hold on me. They don't possess my eternity. And in fact, God holds our suffering and our pain and our trials in his hand like a tool. That God takes our our suffering and holds it like a hammer or a drill to build us up, not tear us down. So know this, that no matter what you're going through, God is in control. Don't take it from me. Take it from John. Take it from a man who was just banished from his city. Take it from a man who would die because of this exile. A man who could not handle the cold, who couldn't handle the walking, who couldn't handle the environment. A man who had essentially become a martyr for his faith. That John, in the midst of his suffering is writing this sure and confident that God is in control. God's got this. But then John ends the letter by praying for Olympias' blessing. He, um, he, he, it's really, really interesting. Before he ends, he, he actually calls Olympias to be honest about her suffering. John says this, I quote, If you wish me to write long letters, inform me of this, and do not deceive me, by saying that you have thrown off all despondency and are enjoying a season of rest. For letters are a remedy of the proper kind to produce great cheerfulness in thee, and you will continually see letters from me. John is basically saying, Olympias, look, don't lie to me. If you're still struggling, if you're still suffering, if you're still worried, let me know, because I'll write longer letters. I'll send them to you. I'll write more encouraging words. I'll give you more of the scriptures, because I I, want to help you, because my letters and my correspondence will produce great cheerfulness in you. Don't pretend to be strong. Share your struggle with me. John's laying this foundation down. It's not good to keep our struggles inside of ourselves, but we need to share it. Share it with Christians. Share it with friends so that we can receive the encouragement and the help that we need. So listen to me. If you're struggling right now, don't go through it alone. It's not a shameful thing to be weak. It's not shameful to not have it all together. It's not shameful to to struggle to trust God in your situation. God never designs you to grow alone. He never designs you to carry this alone, but to do it in community. Remember, we're part of the body of Christ. The body has many functions and many parts. Call on a faithful friend, sibling, parent, or pastor, or whoever. Just just allow them to help you. God has given them to you as a gift in order to encourage your soul. 
that oftentimes God doesn't just sort of do the miraculous where he drops down a beam of encouragement from the sky while you're just sitting there with your eyes closed. God likes to work through ordinary means, through the scriptures, through coffee with a friend, through prayer time, through going to church, through listening to a sermon, those ordinary means that are gifts of God's grace. Open up, share, and receive God's strength and God's healing and be encouraged today. Listen, I love you so much. Thank you for joining us for the Chrysostom Podcast. I want to encourage you. Um, a listener put me on to this. Head to newadvent.org, and you can have access to so many of St. John's sermons for free. www.newadvent.org. It's got all kinds of writings on the church fathers there as well, so I want to encourage you to do that. If you want some higher quality like print editions, you can head on Amazon, and there are some various works there, but be reading St. John Chrysostom. Get the encouragement that you need. Uh, He he has been such a help in my life, and I know he's going to help you too. Go ahead and do that. Two, follow us on Instagram at Chrysostom underscore podcast. We share quotes. I share pictures. Um, I take Instagram quizzes and polls and all those good things. I'd love to interact with you. Shoot me a direct message or anything like that. And then lastly, I just want to encourage you, share this podcast and review it. Uh, review it on Apple. Uh, you know, Give us five stars if you mean it. Write us a good review. Um, and then share this podcast with somebody who needs it. Maybe it can be become part of their devotional time one morning. Maybe they just need it because they're going through suffering. I don't know. Maybe they're interested in, in a historical perspective on theology. I have no idea, but I just want to encourage you, share this podcast. Let's build this podcast up. I love you so much, and I will see you soon.